we cast our minds to Calvary here this morning, where Jesus bled and died for us because we have come in the book of Luke in chapter 23 to the moment of Jesus' death. The moment that he died for our sins. The moment that everything in the Old Testament was building up to. The moment that everything in the New Testament will refer back to from now on. It's the moment that strange things happen and change. Like if you walk out these doors later today and turn around and look up, you will see at the top of this building an instrument of death that has become a symbol of hope because of this moment. And for Jesus, it was the darkest moment of his life, a moment that could have been filled with uncertainty And yet, we see in Luke 23, verse 46, our key verse this morning, look at what Jesus said in this moment. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You ever been afraid of death? Have you ever feared eternity? Or the future. Or the present. Wondered if what God really says in here is really true. Can it be that simple to just trust him forever? Even in the darkest moments. Well that is what Jesus does in this verse. And we're going to look at how Jesus responds in this moment. And some of the people around him. But to really make sense of it. We actually need to back up a couple more verses. So look with me at Luke 23 Verse 44. Now watch this. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. What just happened? Anybody look up, like, where are the lights going? That's exactly what this moment was like for them. See, for them, they were not in a room at Horizon where somebody has control of the lights and we can turn them up and down whenever we want. They're standing outside at the sixth hour, which is noon, high noon, and darkness falls over the land. And it lasts for three hours until the ninth hour. Literally, physically, a dark moment in Jesus' life. But the darkness was more than just physical. For Jesus, the darkness was emotional as he felt the separation from his father. For Jesus, the darkness was spiritual as this is the moment that the weight of every sin, everything that anyone, you and me included, for all time had ever done that fell short of God's perfect standard on Jesus' shoulders in this moment as he's nailed to the cross. Your darkness may be different than Jesus' darkness, but he bore your darkness that day. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when it's dark like this, it's a little bit hard to see. A little bit hard to see eternity. A little bit hard to trust sometimes that it's really there, that that I can really be forgiven for the things that put Jesus on this cross. Sometimes it's a little bit hard just to see my future. Things look dim, and I'm not sure if it's going where I thought it was going. Sometimes the present itself just looks dark 
because of the circumstances I'm facing. Whether that be a diagnosis, whether that be rebellion of my children, like, never mind how I was as a teenager. (laughs) I'm sure they're much more rebellious than I am. And I try to put on a happy face when I'm around other people. But man, that fight Friday night was brutal. Sometimes that darkness is in our relationships. Sometimes that darkness is circumstances or things that other people have done to us. And for every one of us, part of that darkness is the things that we've done ourselves. And in this moment of Jesus' darkness, the world went dark. But we do have control of the lights here, so you can bring them back up now. (laughs) But here's what I want you to know about this darkness. You you see that Luke describes that the sun was darkened, and he describes it for three hours. So this was also not just a spiritual darkness. This was a literal, physical darkness that they were experiencing in that moment. I think this is part of what made the moment so unique, that they just saw a man marching to his death and forgiving people while he hung on a cross. A man nailed to wood and yet inviting a thief to join him in his kingdom. However many crucifixions they had seen, they had never seen the sun go dark for three hours in the middle of the day. So when you and I see things like this in the Bible, I don't know about you, but for me, this begs a question. What happened? How is that possible? Because this is more than just clouds. This is more than just a sandstorm. He says it was dark. The sun went dark for three hours. Could it be an eclipse? Two problems with this being an eclipse. One is that NASA has estimated that in the history and the future of mankind, past and future, the longest eclipse that would create full darkness would be seven minutes and 29 seconds. Three hours. The other problem, if you know anything about the phases of the moon, is that an eclipse is only possible at a new moon, when the moon is between the earth and the sun. Passover, the moment at which Jesus died, the moment at which Jesus becomes our Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, is always celebrated at a full moon. At this moment of darkness, the sun and the moon are on opposite sides of the earth. Hmm. So is Luke exaggerating? Is he wrong? Like, like, what do we do with this? And I want to encourage you that this is not the place where we just turn off our brain and say, I don't know, but I I guess you just got to believe it. See, for me, this is where I turn my brain on. And this is important to me because we see even in our day, even in the last couple of months, a prominent pastor and a prominent worship leader who left their faith in part because they believed there were not good answers to tough questions. One of them even specifically said, nobody asks the tough questions. Hey, I believe that at Horizon we ask the tough questions and I love them because we have fun when we dig even deeper. So if this is real, if the Bible is true, if Luke is not being dramatic, because remember what he said when he started this book? In chapter 1 he said, I've had full understanding from the beginning and I want to line this up for you so you can know for sure that these things happened. He records this as history and he's not the only one. In fact, throughout the historical record, we have multiple, I, I found at least five ancient historical records of this darkness. And what I love is that a couple of them, they do kind of like LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow, if you ever saw that show. 
I know, he's also Jordy from Star Trek. I, I love him in both. But he would always say on Reading Rainbow, he'd say, this book is so good, but don't take my word for it. Go to the library, find the book. Like, read it for yourself. And two of these ancient sources actually say, as long as hundreds of years after Jesus' life, they said, don't take my word for it, go look it up. You have this in the public record. That hundreds of years after Jesus' life, people could still go, travel to Rome, all the way back to the library, search the shelves. Here it is. Find a book by a man named Phlegon. Phlegon was tasked by the Roman Empire to record over 200 years of Roman history. What they called the Olympiads. 199, 200, 201. Here we go. In the fourth year, however, of Olympiad 202, which by our calendar lines up to about A.D. 32, 33, depending on leap years, things like that. It says, a darkness of the sun happened greater and more excellent than any that had happened before it. At the sixth hour, day turned into dark night so that the stars were seen in the sky. And an earthquake, just like Matthew records at Jesus' death, in Bithynia toppled many buildings of the city of Nicaea. That was written by a man who was probably alive when it happened. Why am I telling you all this? Because this is what I believe. I believe that God and science are not opposed to each other. I think that God created science and he loves it. In fact, I will use self-control and not go there right now, but the book of Job tells us things about the way light works as a particle and a wave thousands of years before anybody else figured it out. God loves science. But don't you think that if God really is who he says he is in the Bible, if he really is a supernatural God, if he really holds the whole world in his hands, isn't it possible that he could do something supernatural. That the moment that he looked down at Jerusalem and saw his beloved son hanging on the cross for my sin, he might say, you know what, right now, no light. I can't fully explain it. I may not have natural causes for it, but I have confident historical record, record from both sacred and secular sources that tell me that this really happened. In which case, I begin to think that even if I can't explain it, it's actually more reasonable to believe it than to think that Luke made it up. And it's in this moment that Jesus spoke those words. In this moment of darkness that Jesus proved what Zacharias had prophesied about him 33 years earlier, that he came to shine light into the darkness. To shine light on us who sit in the darkness, who need to find peace and have our sins taken away. That's why verse 46 says that when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. I love that, that he cried out with a loud voice because this is the moment of Jesus' victory. Listen, nobody cries out with a loud voice from the cross unless they are screaming in pain, shouting curses at the people who mock them because they're hanging on the cross. But most of them just whimper in defeat as they die. But Jesus shouts with victory. Did you ever see the first Rocky movie? 
yes, you did. <laughs> At the end of the movie, like, Apollo wins, but you still feel like Rocky won when he shouts, Adrian! Or when William Wallace, at the end of Braveheart, is about to be killed and he shouts freedom. And there's, you're supposed to sort of get this feeling of like victory in defeat. Listen to me, those are just movies and those are just a shadow. But they trigger something in us about this moment. Because they were a shadow of something so real that when it looked like the enemy had crushed Jesus, he merely struck his heel. And Jesus was about to crush the enemy's head, to conquer sin and death. And he shouted, John tells us, one word, to Telestai. It is finished. Jesus had a job to do. Jesus had something to accomplish. And right now, in this moment, it's done. Hear this now. This is for you. What this means is that on the cross... At this very moment, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, did not save a single drop for you or for me. He shouted his victory, and it is your victory too. When you trust him for that forgiveness. When you say, like he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He shouts his victory and then speaks these words. And I love this phrase because it's the only thing in our passage today that we see from Jesus' own mouth. And you know where he gets it? Psalm 31. When Jesus is in his darkest moment... What do I pray? What do I even say right now? What do I say to God? He prays God's word back to God. I love that. That is one of the best things that I have learned in my own spiritual journey is that when I don't know what to pray, when I don't even know where to start, just pick this up, read something, and pray it right back to him. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, Psalm 31, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but you will be blessed if you read it later this week. An incredible psalm about a king who is about to be destroyed. And in that moment, he cries out to God for rescue and then gives thanks to God for his rescue before he is rescued. Because he's so confident in the goodness, the faithfulness, and the strength of God that he basically says, even if I die, I still trust you, God. And so I'll read you just a couple of verses from it. Listen to this in Psalm 31. This is verses 3 through 5. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. You notice something as you listen to that? As Jesus quotes it from the cross, he adds one word. Father. Father into your hands. I think there's something beautiful about that because Jesus was known as the Son of God before he was ever born. And when he was 12 years old, remember when he went to the temple and he shocked all the teachers with his wisdom? And remember what he said to his parents? Hey, why were you looking for me? 
you know, I got to do my father's business. It was his father who was at his baptism on the mountain with Moses and Elijah when glory came on Jesus and he shone like the sun who said, this is my son whom I love. You go read back through the book of Luke, you see this father language everywhere. When he taught us to pray, he said, start like this, father. And just hours before this in the garden, it was the father that he looked to as he sweated blood and said, not my will, but yours. This psalm had become a prayer for the Jewish people that they would pray every night before falling asleep. Because when you're asleep is the time when you realize most of all that you are not in control of your life. You're not even in control of if you wake up again. So before you go to sleep, you just remind yourself, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as Jesus is about to sleep the sleep of death, he prays the same thing. Because he did not fear death. He did not fear eternity. And I wonder for you and I, do we have that kind of confidence in God? Can I commit my spirit to God that way? A friend of mine, some of you know, um, Tad Lawrence, who used to attend here before he passed away. I did not know Tad before he got sick. He died of cancer. And so by the time I met Tad, he looked different than he used to. He had different things to think about than he used to. And I remember... like an afternoon, it was, I feel like it was like midsummer. It was warm outside and he comes in with like winter coat and the ski cap on and you, you could tell physically he was just hurting. And as we stood out here in the atrium and talked, I thought, I want to be kind. I want to be caring. I want to be pastoral. And so I just try to think of what to say. I, I just said, Tad, this has got to be so hard for you. And as we stood out there, he had this big smile on his face <laughs> and he goes, you know what, Drew? I can't wait to meet Jesus face to face. And I'm not kidding, like, for just a moment, like, something snapped in my brain. (laughs) It's like, I'm not, what am I, yeah, man, like, what am I supposed to say next? I was going to hug you or something, I don't know. Here's what I caught in that moment. I realized that I thought, as I thought about what Tad was going through, I thought to myself, I would never want to go through that. I don't want that much time to look forward to what the end of my life is. I don't want that much time to be afraid of what really happens on the other side. I don't want that much time to think about what if I wasn't good enough? What if I, what, 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 I don't know. And in that moment, Tad set something free in me because he had so much confidence in his God that even if he died, he could commit his spirit to his father. That is exactly what Jesus does. And having said this, he breathed his last. This phrase, this is a unique and awkward phrase that Luke uses here to try to describe the moment of Jesus' death. Everywhere after this in the New Testament, when it talks about how Jesus died, how he died, buried, rose again, uses the normal word for death. But in this moment... Uniquely in the New Testament. The the only other place this word shows up is Mark in the same moment, at Jesus' death. He uses this phrase, ek pneuma, which literally means Jesus exited his own spirit, pushed his own spirit out of his body. It's a really awkward phrasing, because that word pneuma means breath. It can also mean wind, because breath is when I move the air, right? And so it comes to be a symbol of life and an indication that my spirit is still in my flesh. The Old Testament has the word ruach that works just like that. 
Go ahead, take a deep breath. If you could do that just now, you are alive. Congratulations. And Jesus does something in this moment that no one has ever done before. And no one will ever do again. This is not Jesus deciding to stop chemo and let the cancer overtake him. This is not Jesus giving up and just letting death happen. This is Jesus choosing his moment because his work is done. Because it is finished. Because he loves you. This is his victory. This is why you can commit your spirit into the Father's hands, even in the darkness. No matter what is going on in your life today, no matter what comes in the future, no matter what is coming after you die, how murky it can all look, commit your spirit into the Father's hands, even when it looks dark. Because Jesus was forsaken for you so that God could say to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think that's why in verse 47, the centurion saw what had happened. He glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The only righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee, remember them, they stood at a distance watching these things. They'd never seen anything like this before. That centurion, had he seen hundreds? Had he seen thousands? He had never seen anyone choose his own moment and shout his own victory. He may not have understood it, but he had never seen a righteous man before. And it's through him that we are made righteous. That when I trust God with my spirit, I'm no longer trying to defend myself, justify myself. I'm saying, God, I trust that my salvation is secure, my resurrection is assured because of your ability, not mine. And he makes us righteous through this moment. In fact, it's in this moment that the prophet Amos is fulfilled. Listen to this from Amos 8. You were reading Amos 8 this morning, weren't you? been a while for me too I, for, I didn't even know this was in here i'm not sure if i forgot or i didn't even know but listen to this it came to pass it shall come to pass in that day says the lord god that i will make the sun go down at noon and i will darken the earth in broad daylight i will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation i will bring sackcloth on every waist baldness on every head hey every head i will make it like mourning for an only son And it's end like a bitter day. And in that moment, there was a man there who made a decision. A decision to commit his present into the Father's hands. And I think this is for us too. Commit your present into the Father's hands. Not just your spirit, not just to trust him for eternity, but to trust him for today. Look at verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph... A council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now we sang earlier tonight, his body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. 
That's this man. That's Joseph. The fact that he was a council member means he was part of the Sanhedrin. What he did not agree to was this illegal trial or the fact that they put Jesus to death for nothing that he had done. In fact, we see in the other Gospels a couple things that are hinted at here. One is that Joseph was wealthy. Like the 1% of the 1%. He was influential. He was well-known. And as a council member, he had authority. But the other disciples also indicate to us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. A secret disciple because he feared the Jews. And here's what's interesting about Joseph. Joseph already trusted God for his eternity. Like, why would a guy from Arimathea have a tomb in Jerusalem? And a brand new one, in fact. Like, he had just bought this, paid for it to be hand-carved. No one's ever laid in this tomb before. That's a pretty penny. Especially in Jerusalem, because everybody wants to be buried in Jerusalem, because the Old Testament says, when Messiah comes in glory, he's coming to Jerusalem. So if I die before he gets here... Bury me in Jerusalem because I want to be the first to know when he gets back. Joseph trusts him for that. And by the fact that we know he's a disciple of Jesus, we know that he's trusting Jesus now for that. As the Messiah who will bring him up from Jerusalem. He may not understand everything that's going on. He may be significantly confused that the one he's trusting is now hanging on a cross. But he has trusted God for his eternity. But not quite for his present. He's sort of in this moment where it's like, God, I believe you are who you say you are. Jesus, I believe that you are the only way. I will take that in and I will put my confidence in you. Um, Just like, don't want to tell my friends about it right now. Here's what I think is an encouragement for us in that. In this critical moment, it's actually a secret disciple who does more for Jesus than some of the people who walked on water or spoke to crowds or performed miracles. Because in this moment, even though it put everything on the line for him, I mean, you make a claim for Jesus, you're off the council for starters. But Joseph chose not to be a secret disciple anymore, to do something bold and to ask for the body of Jesus publicly. And it says in verse 53, Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. Notice how cold the passage becomes. All the way up until now, Luke has said, Jesus, he, him. Now it changes to the body and it. And it's even colder than we realize because if you hung on a cross, there were two options for the body. One, who cares? We don't have time for this. Leave it on the cross. Let it rot and bake in the sun. Option number two, if if you were like the lucky ones, pull the body down off the cross Chuck it in a pit with all the other bodies that are rotting away as the sun roasts them, as the wolves eat them, as the vultures come and rip the flesh to pieces. That was what was waiting for Jesus' body. Except that Joseph takes this cold moment and turns it into a warm one by asking for the body of Jesus so he can do what was known as the tahara. Now the tahara is when they would take the body lay it out on a table. They had a very special process and a group of men or a group of women known as the Hevra Kadisha, a secret society who had prepared just for this to gently, carefully wash the body, wrap the body, 
and prepare it for an honorable burial. The tahara is an act of love. As I was describing this to my wife this week, she told me about when her grandma Wynne died. And one of her cousins uh, had a degree in cosmetology, and so she actually did grandma's makeup for the funeral service. And as I listened to Melissa describing that, I thought, that has to be so hard. Like, I have a hard enough time with an open casket when I have to see that the person I love is gone. But to touch them, to feel that what was warm has gone cold, to know that they're not there anymore. And I asked her, why in the world would your cousin want to do that? And her answer to me was, it was hard. But she loves grandma. And Grandma Wynne was very lovable. You see, when Joseph saw how Jesus loved him, he didn't flip a switch to like, okay, then I gotta prove to him that I'm worth it. I gotta try to earn my salvation now. I got some check boxes to do. Maybe if I wash his body, then he'll really love me. No, he already saw how much Jesus loved him. Now what he's doing is loving him back. Now he gives the Messiah the tomb that he had built so that he could wait for the Messiah. Now he takes something that he had set aside for himself, something that he'd saved for him and his family, a good thing, a valuable thing. He gave it to Jesus so that it became something great. In fact, in this moment, Joseph fulfills prophecy out of the book of Isaiah that Jesus would be buried with the rich in his death. And he wasn't alone. Verse 55 tells us that the women who had come with him from Galilee, remember, we just saw them, and we'll see them again. They followed after and observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Notice here that they are eyewitnesses, as Luke is recording, to the fact that this is not a swoon, this is not a hoax. Jesus was literally dead and buried. And they have not read the next chapter. They don't know how the book of Luke ends. Paul's letters haven't been written yet. All they know in this moment is that Jesus loved them and they love Jesus. And they're giving him their time, their resources, their hearts. And I love that in this moment, for Joseph and for these women, God had a customized approach to each of them that he'd prepared hundreds of years before they were ever born. That the prophet Isaiah, though he could only see it dimly, knew that Joseph was coming. That Joseph probably didn't even realize until Jesus was resurrected and started teaching people how everything before that was about him. Joseph, come here. Look at this, Isaiah 53. Ever read verse 9? That's you, Joseph. And I believe that he has that for you and I too. That he has a custom approach to show you his love and draw you to himself. In fact, that's why I'm here. I believe that that's why you're here. I believe that that's why this place is here. Because guess what? I don't commit my spirit into Horizon's hands. Horizon is just the name of the building where we get to meet together. But everything that we do when we come to this place, everything that this place is built to do, the reason that we have equipping services and exploring services and we talk about new spaces, we build apps and we download MP3s and we share them with our friends, whatever it is, when you volunteer down the hallway in East Station or with our students, when you go cook a meal at City Gospel, and we do need cooks, anything that's happening through this place is because we believe that God has a customized approach to you 
to the whole world because you're here and he loves you and he proves it in this moment when the king hangs on a cross. So I wonder if we can pray like Jesus did in these pages. If we can commit our present into the Father's hands. Like, could I start to pray, Lord, I want to give you control instead of trying to keep control because I trust my spirit. I commit it into your hands, Father. And maybe you're still hiding like Joseph was. Maybe you're hiding something you did. Maybe you're hiding something you do. Listen, you don't have to be afraid of that anymore. He already knows. He already died for it. Confess it to him. Be free from it. Or maybe like Joseph, it's just that you've put your confidence in him for eternity, but it's hard to live it now because actually things don't seem that dark. Things seem good. Things are going well for Joseph. Maybe they're going well for you. And there's a part of this that's like, if I really go all out for this kingdom, I'm a little nervous that things might change because I like how it is right now. I'd encourage you, don't be a secret disciple anymore. Go public. Be bold. And maybe that's taking a, a public step like baptism to declare the confidence that you have in him. You know, maybe that's beginning to look for ways that you can share what God has done in your life with the other people in your life. Maybe it's just learning to pray, God, into your hands I commit my spouse. Into your hands I commit my kids. In fact, we've got a family night tonight with Dr. Kathy Cook, which if you have not met Kathy, she is one of the people that has been most influential in helping me commit my kids into the Father's hands. When you hear the way that she talks about how God's creativity shows up in your kids, your grandkids, let me just say, be here at 6 o'clock tonight. Because even that, like everything else we do here, is built to help us commit ourselves into his hands. So I encourage you today, pray. Just pray Jesus' words, God's words right back to him. Pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And maybe you have never done that before. Maybe you have never trusted him for your forgiveness before, never trusted him for your eternity before. Then this becomes a moment right now that you can say, I no longer fear death. I no longer fear eternity because God, my Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I want to give you a chance to do that because for the next couple of minutes, Neil is going to play a song and the words that you're going to hear come directly out of Isaiah 53. A prophecy that is fulfilled not in broad strokes and vague generalities, but in incredible detail in this moment of Christ's death for you. So as you listen, would you just take this moment to talk to the Father? <laughs>